a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Olga Olaker, speaking to you from Brussels. Alyssa Jobson is on holiday this week, so I am your only host for this episode. Today, we're talking about the recent flare-up of tensions in northern Kosovo. Poredili smo u skladu sa situacijom nećemo dozvoliti pogrom srpskog naroda. On May 29th, ethnic Serb protesters armed with clubs and stun grenades clashed with troops of the NATO peacekeeping force K4 in Svechan, one of Kosovo's northern municipalities. K4 has been in northern Kosovo since the end of a brutal war between Serbia and Kosovo, which took place in the 1990s and ended with Kosovo effectively separating from Serbia, something Serbia has never formally recognized, but that de facto has been the case. Tensions have continued, which explains uh, why K4 has stuck around all this time. And the most recent outburst came as the latest in a series of events, but was most proximately caused by Pristina's decision to install recently elected officials into the northern Serb-dominated municipalities of Kosovo who were entirely ethnic Albanian, uh, something caused by holding elections which the ethnic Serbs had boycotted. So how dangerous is this latest flare-up in tensions between Pristina and Belgrade, and what can be done to defuse the situation? To talk about it, we are, as always, really happy to welcome back uh, to the podcast Marco Prelich, Crisis Group Senior Consulting Analyst for the Balkans. Marco has worked in the region for decades, including as an investigator helping to prosecute atrocities uh, that took place during the wars in the former Yugoslavia with the International Tribunal in The Hague. For Crisis Group, he wrote uh, back in May an EU watch list entry titled Kosovo Serbia, Finding a Way Forward. And more recently, a Q&A explainer on the situation as it's evolving now called Behind the Renewed Troubles in Northern Kosovo. Uh, so the titles tell the story of a downward trend line, and Marco is going to explain to us why that is. Marco, welcome back to War and Peace. Uh, hi, Olya. Thanks for having me. So it's impossible to quickly talk anybody through the tensions in the Western Balkans. I think we've discussed before on the podcast that you have to start somewhere in the 14th century and then very slowly make your way forward. But if we just stick to the last year or so, how do we get to the point of protesters clashing with K4? Uh, so you don't want, you don't want me to go back to the, the 1380s, right? If uh, you could avoid okay. it, that would be great. Yeah. I w- that's really disappointing. I was looking forward to, you know, some, some late medieval uh, historical discussion. I mean, it's fascinating, but, but um, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is so fascinating. Um, Okay, so this is a situation that has been there for quite some time, basically since uh, NATO intervened against Serbia in, in 1999. And this is what made Kosovo possible, right? 
That's what made Kosovo possible as an independent country, basically removed it from the power of, uh, of Serbia, put it initially under international administration through the United Nations. And then after that, in 2008, Kosovo declared independence, right? But the thing that happened in 99 was there was a lot of uh, movement of population with people basically moving to where their co-nationals were. So the Albanians who lived in... Which we call ethnic cleansing, right? Ethnic self-cleansing. Yeah, but it wasn't all ethnic cleansing. It was also some self-cleansing. But basically what happened uh, was... There were never that many Albanians in the northern part of Kosovo, but there were some. And most of them moved south. And a lot of the Serbs who lived in the south of Kosovo, not all of them, there's still some there, but a lot of them also moved to the north. And they kind of drew a line along the Ibar River, which is the boundary between the north and the rest of it, uh, as basically the, the line where de facto Serbs still ran things, even though it was formally under UN administration and later under uh, under Kosovo administration, but de facto it was self-run by the Serbs. So that's been the situation, right, for a long time. So you've got this weird model where Kosovo is de facto independent, recognized by a lot of people, certainly not by Serbia. In northern Kosovo, you have a predominantly ethnic Serb population, which has a pretty solid measure of self-rule. And as I understand it, they're kind of sort of reporting to Belgrade and kind of sort of reporting to Pristina during this period, right? That you've got people who are sometimes dual-hatted in that they report to both governments or they just sit side by side with their counterpart who's reporting to the other government. Yeah, it is a deeply weird part of the world. Uh, so the details get quite complicated, but the reality is what basically you, you sketched out. And that is because the outsiders who have been trying to square the circle down there um, have at some point decided that, okay, we can't get the Serbs and Serbia to admit that Kosovo is an independent country. So that's a bridge too far. What we can do and what they tried to do, and they did with some success do, was to get the Serbs to accept the institutions of Kosovo and interact with them and accept their authority because those institutions derive from ones set up by the United Nations, right? So those United Nations institutions were not of a separate country. They were status neutral, okay? So they separated the idea of national sovereignty, like what country is this in, from the question of who sits in the office and who you have to answer to. So the, the idea was just get the Serbs to interact with these Kosovo institutions and pretend that they're not independent. Okay. And that led to these things like Serbs standing in Kosovo elections, getting elected as mayor, but pretending that they're the mayor of a country that's not independent. Okay. That it's, you know, just temporarily being run by these institutions, these people in Pristina, um, but really is still part of Serbia, and they would have a Serbian flag out front. And Serbia was still uh, operating some of its municipal institutions in the same places. And to make it even more bizarre, like you said, sometimes it's the same people, okay? Sometimes that the mayor in the Serbian system is the same guy as the mayor in the the Kosovo one, and even more strange, sometimes it's not the same guy, it's like the deputy. So 
you know, you could be the deputy mayor in Kosovo and the, the regular mayor in Serbia or vice versa. Side detail, um, both of these positions come with a salary. That made it, you know, sort of nice um, in some ways for the, the locals, um, if confusing for, for, for outsiders. So, but th- so this confusing but kind of functional system breaks down. Why? It breaks down after uh, Elbin Kurti uh, becomes the, the prime minister of uh, Kosovo uh, about, about two years ago. He um, began putting a lot more pressure on the, uh, the Serbs of, of the north to uh, accept the authority of Kosovo and to a- accept the symbols of its independence and sovereignty. Okay, so he began leaning on this ambiguity that the international community, the West, basically, so the U.S. and um, and the European Union, had resorted to as a way of getting the Serbs to integrate. The first place that this started was, and it seems somewhat ridiculous to outsiders, uh, but it really was very, very important for locals, the issue of license plates. What license plates do you drive with? The Serbs, a lot of the Serbs, most of them, like 80, 90% plus uh, up in the in the north, drove with license plates issued by Serbia. And Serbia marks where you live on your license plate. There's a two two letter code uh, that indicates the town. So people were driving with these these codes that indicated towns that Serbia claimed in in Kosovo, right? So it was kind of a finger in the eye of the Kosovo authorities. Korti said we're not gonna we're not going to allow that anymore. We're gonna start fining drivers who are driving with these and then we're gonna start actually confiscating their cars, ultimately. So, you know, rural population, um, people are, are living, they don't have a lot of spare money. Um, so fines are already pretty bad. Losing your car is an existential problem. To make matters worse, the police that would have to um, enforce this were ethnic Serb police, who basically flatly refused to find their, you know, their co-nationals for defying Kosovo authority. So they all, uh, ultimately, there was a couple of rounds of, of demonstrations, some violence um, over the course of uh, last year, and ultimately last November, they all resigned. Everybody resigned, all the Serbs, the cops, the prosecutors, the judges, the mayors, the municipal assembly people, the ministers, all the Serbs resigned from all their Kosovo jobs, and they're still out. of this was getting worse, the EU managed to convince the parties to come to the table and uh, in an effort to calm things down and also to chart a way forward, which led to our May take on this, which was slightly more optimistic than our current take. Can you talk uh, to that a little bit and explain what, what happened there? Uh-huh. Yeah. So the EU project right now is this, um, is this agreement on normalization of relations which is kind of a code word for doing everything that follows from recognizing each other as independent countries without actually going ahead and recognizing. So if you want an analogy, it's kind of like a civil partnership instead of a marriage. You know, you have all the benefits, uh, has the same legal status, but you don't actually have the, the label that you stick on it. So uh, the EU got the two sides to agree to a roadmap, a very sort of 
vague roadmap leading up to normalization earlier this year. And then it kind of all fell apart uh, in that Belgrade and Pristina clearly did not have the same understanding of what they had signed up to as, as the other one did. Uh, and Which is how you get people to sign things that they when they fundamentally disagree. <laughs> yeah, well, they never signed. That was the thing. Uh, mm-hmm. They, which became an issue for Kosovo, and this is kind of a, a piquant little detail of international law, um, in that agreements can become binding without being signed in international law, and that's the view of the U.S. and the European Union that this is a binding agreement. Kosovo says, "Yeah, we don't believe that uh, because there's no paper with a name on it," and certainly. They are not acting as though they had agreed to be bound by this. The big problem is the vagueness, okay? And there's not any agreement on who is supposed to do what when, right? So there's like a list of things that they're both supposed to do, and they both say, well, okay, you you go first. This sounds like Minsk too. It does a bit, doesn't it? Uh, yes. Yeah. And that didn't turn out all that well. But no, well, let's hope but that it kept, this will turn yeah. out better. Let's hope. Okay. Um, So, so far, it's looking pretty precarious, right? So instead of moving forward on these agreements where agreeing to disagree was what got you to agreement, we've seen a breakdown and we've seen the actual involvement of the K4 peacekeeping force for the first time. And how long? How long has it been since K4 had to actually do something like this? Oh, geez, I don't even know. But it's been a while uh, since K4 had to uh, take, uh, take heat in the same way. The thing that tipped everything over the edge, uh, Oya, was the uh, uh, the Kosovo government taking everyone by surprise in late May on the 26th, I think, uh, which was a day that the Serbian government staged the pro-itself demonstration in Belgrade. Uh, and this had to do with these uh, shootings, these mass killings um, that happened earlier in May in Serbia that have nothing to do with Kosovo whatsoever. They're just random outbursts of violence. But uh, the regime felt threatened enough that it felt it had to stage a, a show of support. And they uh, they sort of vacuumed up whoever they could, wherever they could, uh, everyone who was in some way dependent on, on government favor. And that meant that all of the Serbs, uh, a lot of the Serbs from, from northern Kosovo were bussed up to Belgrade on the 26th. and To take part to take, in the demonstrations yeah, yeah, and yeah. show the Serbian yeah, flag. Show the Serbian flag and, and cheer uh, President uh, Vucic. And uh, all of his works. That day, surprising everyone, including the Americans, the Europeans, uh, the Serbs, probably even his own government, uh, Korti had the police uh, escort these newly elected ethnic Albanian mayors into the four um, municipal buildings um, that had previously been staffed by Serbs who were wearing these double hats. But, you know, since they all resigned from the Kosovo jobs, they were really only at this point wearing Serbian hats. You know, so these were Serbian buildings with Serbian flags out front, temporarily vacant, and then Kosovo moved its guys in. And like you said, they they were elected by this tiny turnout, like three four percent, which was entirely the the three four percent of northern Kosovo that is not ethnically Serb; it's mostly Albanian. Um, so when the Serbs got back, uh, they wanted to uh, basically pick a fight and get these people out, and then NATO had to interpose itself. And that is why it got attacked. Okay, it wasn't so much that the Serbs were anti-NATO, they were anti you guys who are between us and the people we want to beat on. 
and which is their point, right. right? I mean, that's why you have a peacekeeping force is it gets between exactly group X and the group that they would like to be. That's on, right. right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's where things are now. And the, um, the thing that is striking to me is that maybe two things that are striking to me. Um, one is how there's a kind of groundhog day quality to this. When you and I were editing that Q&A uh, document that, that we just uh, published, in line with our internal procedures, it goes up to uh, president of Crisis Group, uh, Comfort. And she said, you know, this really just takes me back to when I was working in Kosovo, which was like 20, 25 years ago. Um, and this, I think, is a lesson for people that, you know, if you don't deal with these problems in a kind of substantive way, they do just keep coming back. They don't like fix themselves. So that was that was one thing. And the other thing is how differently this this seems in uh, in Pristina and and the rest of the world. The stories that you hear coming out of the Kosovo press are it's a basically uh, organized criminals and uh, gangs of ne'er-do-wells are terrorizing the Serbs and everyone else in northern Kosovo. And we need to get them out so that we can allow the the good Serbian population to integrate back into our government, which is a fantasy. It's a total fantasy. There are absolutely these gangs of organized criminals and the people there uh, do fear and resent them uh, because they do in fact prey on the local population. But when push comes to shove, like everywhere else in the world, the hard men uh, come out and fight. And in this case, they're fighting for what the, the local population wants them to be fighting for. And there's been kind of a weird gender dynamic, right, in these protests of when the women come out, when the men come out. Uh, you've described this yeah, in some there, of the texts. There is a bit. There is a bit. Yeah. Uh, so it is a um, uh, an inclusive uh, protest, if you will. Um, and this has been the tradition, actually, in previous rounds uh, that everyone shows up. Partly it's because everyone uh, who works for, who gets money from Serbia in some way is expected to show up. They actually have schedules when they're supposed to go. But there are a lot of women who are employed. A lot of Serbian women used to work in those municipal buildings, either as elected officials or as, as uh, staff. But when, the, but when the fighting starts, the women they, yeah, back yeah. off. And, and most men do too, right? And this very narrow group of fighting men are the ones who are engaged. Is that about right? Yeah, it's hard to tell uh, exactly. I mean, there, there are definitely, there's a look. If you look at the, the photos, there are people who have a kind of distinctive look. They're younger. They're wearing bandanas. Uh, sometimes they have... Cargo pants? Are they wearing I cargo pants? I have not... I haven't gone into that degree of detail. Maybe for okay. our next podcast, we I'm can just get thinking, into the sartorial are, Okay. Um, but, uh, but there are also some older guys who are, you know, so there are people who are joining in uh, by, you know. Mm -hmm. so okay. There are the sort of the shock troops and then there's everyone else. So, you know, what I find really striking, you know, about this deja vu all over again is that Kosovo's backers, right, EU countries that have supported it, NATO, the United States, seem to not be all that happy with Pristina right now. Is this a game changer in any way? It is definitely unprecedented. They are furious with uh, Pristina. So they have already gone a lot further than I expected them to go in terms of punishing the Kurdish administration. 
Uh, so they they disinvited them from this um, U.S.-led milita- large military exercise called Defender 23, which is taking place throughout Europe. But more seriously, they cut off high-level contacts for the time being, and they most ominously said that they would not help Kosovo get more recognitions and join more international bodies. There have been rumors that have been floating around the, um, the Kosovo press that the U.S. was threatening to go even further uh, and to impose personal sanctions on leading government officials and to uh, to back off even more um, on the international uh, level. I don't know if, that was, if those are true or not, but the, the the game plan does seem to be to to pressure Kosovo uh, into pulling these guys out. The problem is you could sort of maybe kind of see them agreeing to do that. That is almost certainly not enough. What they need to do further is do something to show that they're willing to follow through on earlier commitments to create uh, some kind of autonomy for the, the Serbs. This this list, their commitments under the agreed list, yeah? Yeah. Some of those, there, there are things that they promised to do back in 2013, so it's 10 years ago um, now to to allow the Serbs a, some kind of self self-management in the form of an association of Serb majority municipalities that Kosovo has has never followed up on. The view in Washington and in Brussels is uh, you got to do that before pretty much anything else happens because you can't have this major outstanding commitment and then say, well, okay, now you know we're, we we nonetheless demand that Serbia do all these other things before we... No, I mean, you've got to sort of settle your bill before making another order. The Kurti administration really very much does not want to do that. They uh, hate and fear that that idea. Uh, they fear it because they think it will, uh, well, it might lead to secession uh, later on of Serb areas uh, and also that it will render their country uh, ungovernable. I think it's an exaggerated fear, but it's... There it is. Um, you've got to be pretty optimistic to see some common ground emerging at this point. So we're crisis group. We're crisis group. We try to find ways forward that at least mitigate the risks. What do you got? Uh, well, we got a crisis that uh, that might not be <laughs> that might not be the we can at least point to it. Um, I think you know this is sort of a, an unsatisfying position for me as an analyst to be in, but I think the Western countries are pretty much doing what I would recommend to them to do. Namely, they are putting a lot of pressure on, on Pristina to make a, a, a credible signal. Uh, to First of all, to de-escalate. So pull these mayors out. Yeah, they were legally elected, but you can't pretend that 3% of the vote gives you some kind of, you know, mandate. Um, pull them out, uh, pull the special police out, do some confidence building uh, with the local population, listen to the local population. Uh, and make a credible gesture, uh, and it's got to be credible toward uh, doing this this association of Serbian municipalities. So keep the pressure on Pristina to do that, but also acknowledge to yourself that that pressure might not work. Okay, the Kurti might just be willing to go to the mat on this, and that means you need a Plan B. And then Plan B is basically got to be you know prevent violence from breaking out again. K four which has been drawing down uh, for uh, many years, has recently uh, reinforced itself with about 700 additional troops. That was a, a good move. And basically the, the next alternative is 
for K4 to uh, essentially take control of the situation in northern Kosovo. That is something that the authorities in Pristina, the, the Kosovo government, is, is afraid uh, might happen uh, because that would mean to them uh, losing control, what, what control they have, which is not nothing, but uh, and, uh, and wait it out, wait for a better day. Okay, wow. Well, that is very depressing and disheartening, um, but uh, also really informative. Marco, I think you've taken us uh, on a really fantastic uh, and rapid tutorial of uh, a very, very complicated situation. And I'm really grateful uh, to you for coming back and uh, having this conversation. Sure. Um, and I think, I mean, I think it is depressing on one level, but on another level, uh you know, we are at least not looking at some kind of mass, you know, mass killing, mass violence. You know, it's bad enough what happens there. and People do occasionally get killed, but that is a win. You know, it is a win for international peacekeeping. So on that level, uh, you know, there's a silver lining, I guess. Given what else, what else is happening in Europe, that's pretty good. I think that's a really terrific point. Uh, and it really just talked to kind of keeping one's expectations, uh, keeping expectations realistic, um, which I think, yeah, it's an important reminder that uh, we accomplish something if it's actually better than it could be. To read more of Marco and Crisis Group's work on Kosovo and to better understand the situation, you can check out most recently the Q&A behind the renewed troubles in northern Kosovo and uh, the previous piece, Kosovo Serbia, finding a way forward. And do know we're going to we're going to keep following this and keep writing. So keep an eye on our website www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Marco on Twitter. He's at mprelich. You can also follow Crisis Group and me on Twitter, Crisis Group's at Crisis Group. I'm at Olya Olikur, and I'm also on Mastodon as at Olya Olikur. Uh, we'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vigursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub, uh, who make each and every podcast possible. But our biggest thanks, as always, go to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And please leave us a review uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we look forward to talking to you soon in uh, two weeks or thereabouts. Uh, but until then, goodbye. <laughs>